Remain standing, if you will, and turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. And verse, we'll begin in verse 11. Galatians 3, 11. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word for which we're immensely grateful for, that you have not left us to our own devices to figure things out, but you have revealed yourself to us and given us your word. And we know that it's powerful and sharper than a double-edged. We know that it will not return void. And so we pray that you would make your word effective. Cause us to hear your word to us today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. For those who haven't been with us, we are looking at some of the reasons why Jesus came. Uh, as we look at Advent season, it seemed uh, especially important to me that we look at this reason that Jesus fulfills the covenant. It's kind of a big deal, uh, but we also happen to have been looking at it uh, in our study in Genesis. And so the way in God's providence all this worked out, we finished Genesis 15 right before Advent, and so this is kind of fresh in our minds. We know that in Jesus, everything is fulfilled. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus. And so Jesus has come to fulfill the covenant. Now, we've been looking particularly at the covenant promise to Abraham, and that's what Paul deals with here in this passage in Galatians 3. And the promise, as you know, was for a son, that he would be a father of many nations, many people. It was also for a particular land in the Palestinian plain, and that all the world, all the peoples of the world would be blessed through him. Now, for those who know me know that my mind works a little differently maybe than most. And so sometimes I think of questions that maybe you don't think of or that none of us would admit that we think of. But sometimes I wonder, like, what for Abraham, what, what was, he got a son, but the rest of this, he doesn't really get to see. You know, what, what good is land that you don't get to take possession of? His descendants got to take possession of it. You know, what good is it to be, a, I mean, it's nice being a blessing. We talk about leaving a legacy and so forth. Maybe this sounds a little extreme to even express these kind of questions, but these things go through my head. Because if all we do is look at this passage, and some of us have been taught in, in, in this way, I certainly grew up with this mindset that there was this uh, uh, different way of interpreting Scripture. 
and missing all that this meant. So if we don't really understand what the covenant truly meant, then we can look at this and think, Abraham kind of got a raw deal because he didn't get to see all the fruit of the promises given to him. But of course we know that the answer to these promises are fulfilled in Jesus, that it was something so significantly more than just a son or than, than descendants or than a piece of land or even being a blessing to many people. And that particular answer is found in the coming of Jesus at Advent. Jesus came to accomplish the covenant promise, not only given to Abraham, but the the entire covenant. And so all of the the human covenants that we see that God made with humans to Adam, to Noah, to Abraham, and so forth, Jesus came to fulfill all of these. And so when we think of being in Abraham's shoes you have to realize that the covenant was fulfilled beyond his wildest dreams. He he could never have imagined when he looked up at the stars of the sky and tried to count them, all that it meant for him. And this should remind us then, when we think about the promises that we've been given, that it too will be be beyond our wildest imagination. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so as we consider then how Jesus fulfills the covenant, there are many passages that we could have looked at. I spent probably too much time trying to decide which passage to look at this idea because I came up with this list of the reasons first. And then I went and said, you know, what passage would be the best way to frame it in the context of Advent so that it doesn't seem so detached from what we're, we're celebrating. And the reason that I landed on Galatians 3 is that Paul is really emphasizing grace. Uh, I mean, of course, all of Scripture emphasizes grace, but Paul, in a unique way, is emphasizing grace in this letter to the Galatians. And the reason I think it's important to focus on this idea of grace in connection with the covenant is because we so easily forget We so easily forget, and we forget often. And the reason I know this is because we are constantly trying to bring the law into the equation. We do something right, and we expect something good in return. Or we think, God, why have you allowed this to happen to me when I did this over here? I did this good thing, and you allowed a bad thing to happen in my life. We have a quiet time every day for a week or for a month or maybe even a year, and we think that somehow God owes us a comfortable life, that he owes us our Christmas wish list. We throw an extra 20 in the plate at church or in the Salvation Army bucket, and we would never say this, but this is in our hearts. We, we think like karma, that somehow good things are going to come if we do that. That's how we function. This is how we're wired. We're all little legalists. We're, we all want to play the lawyer. We all want to defend our own case as if we could earn something. Now, don't get me wrong. God does delight when we obey. He does delight when we spend time with Him in communion every day. He does delight when we give cheerfully and when we're generous people. But God will not be owned or controlled by any of His creation. He doesn't owe us anything. And while there are tremendous blessings to obedience, to communion, 
quiet time to generosity or fill in the blank. I I pick some of the same things every time because these are things that maybe I struggle with more. But we're not owed such blessings because we can never earn it. We never did earn it. No one did. This is, this is Paul's point in Galatians 3. If you're going to live under the law, basically, is what he says. If you're going to live according to the law, you've got to keep the whole law. And who has kept the whole law? If you're an employer and you decided to give bonuses to your employees to reward pr- productivity, and you thought this sounded like a good idea until you noticed after a few years that, what do your employees do? <laughs> well... And, 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 and what else do, do all of us do? Every one of us has probably been guilty to this. When we see a police car, what do we do? We slow down. When we see bonus season coming up, what do we do? We hustle, don't we? We hustle. And when bonus season is far away, we don't hustle. So what does the employer feel like? Ah, not so inclined with those bonuses. We're all legalists. We all do this. Galatians 3, Paul is countering particularly the Judaizers. What they were trying to do is come in and lay works righteousness on top of the gospel. They were trying to lay a requirement that no one could meet, that no one could fulfill, that no one could measure up to. And Paul comes in and says, this isn't the way that it works. He's going to take them back to the basics, back to that inheritance that came by a promise. He says that if it's by a promise, then it came by grace because there were no stipulations. Where was Abram when the promise was given to him? This was just a few weeks ago, Genesis 15. What's, what, was, what was Abram's condition when God ratified the covenant? Some of your condition right now, right? No, I'm kidding. Abram was fast asleep. There was, there, God was not saying we're both going to walk through the animals so that it can be done to either one. God alone walked through the animals, signifying He alone would keep the covenant. It's all by grace. It's always been all by grace, and it always will be. And God did that, what He promised. He came, He put on flesh, being born as a human, as a baby, to come and to die and to give His life as a ransom for many, thus fulfilling the covenant promises. So Advent is a season then of celebrating the covenant promise of God fulfilled in Jesus, who was born to lay down His life for you and for me. And so as we look at Galatians 3 and verse 11, we are right in the middle of his argument, but for the sake of time, that's where we're going to start. I will mention that in verses 7 and 8, for some further explanation, he, he, he writes what the promise to Abraham really means. He says, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So he's saying your, 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 your ethnicity, the line in which you were born, what your parents did, uh, who they are, none of that counts. It's by faith that we're sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. Paul is exegeting Genesis for us by explaining what that meant. He's saying, When God told Abraham, In you all the nations shall be blessed, Abraham, for all we know, didn't get that explanation. We don't have the explanation or the account that Abram was given that explanation. But Paul's saying what that actually means is that foreseeing that he would justify the Gentiles by faith, he preached the gospel. That was the gospel message. Even if Abraham didn't get it all, we can look back and say that in you all the nations shall be blessed was the good news 
that Jesus would come to give his life so that we could be justified by faith. So the blessing is ours by faith. And then Paul reminds them of what relying on our behavior accomplishes in verse 10. I've said it already, and I'll say it again. We're all, this, this is a fight we all fight, to rely on our own behavior. It's our default mode that we run back to. And even though we wouldn't admit it in Bible study or Sunday school or church or whatever, we, we know this in our own heart of hearts that when we see you know, the, the, the emblem on the side of the car sitting on the side of the road, we slow down. Why? Because we know that we're guilty a lot of times. We're, 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 this, it's, it's who we are. Paul says in verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. So if you want to follow the law, that's where you end up because of sin. And so it's following that then in verse 11 that we begin reading, no one is justified before God by the law for the righteous shall live by faith. Now the righteous shall live by faith. This certainly isn't the only place we see this used in scripture. It's a quote from Habakkuk 2.4. Paul also uses it in Romans. You could even make the argument that Paul bases his uh, kind of his, his, his thesis on this idea, which he again quotes in the first chapter of Romans. What is Paul trying to make clear by saying this? A writer named Todd Wilson, I like what he says. He says, what we learn from the whole Old Testament, as well as from this passage in Galatians, is that God has posted a gigantic dead-end sign over the path of the law. The law cannot give life. Apart from the grace of God, the law of God will only stir up sin within you, ultimately choking you to death. The law never saved. The law never will save. The law was never intended to save. Salvation and life only come according to the promise. It's the covenant that God established in the context of what we're talking about today and in this passage given to Abraham, that reveals our only hope. The righteous shall do what? Live by faith. So life and salvation is ours by faith in Christ, according to the promise, not the law. Paul says it this way in Romans 8 verse 3, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. And so we don't put our confidence in our good works. And I don't mean this just for salvation. I think most of us in this room would acknowledge that we're not saved by works, just by the, the, the nods and the affirmations, the nonverbal affirmations. I think what most of us probably struggle with is the notion that God's love somehow hinges on our good works. So we think of ourselves as secure, we're saved, but because we're so fickle in our own love, sometimes we lay, try and lay that on top of God. Like in the context of doing something good, we think God should love us more. Or in the context of doing something sinful, we think that God loves us less. No one's good works not only ever gained them salvation, no one's good works ever gained them favor before God. God doesn't love you more if you do something good. God doesn't love you less if you do something bad because His love is eternal, His love is unchangeable, and His love is unconditional. It's not based on you. That was the whole point of knocking Abraham out. 
It's to show that it's not based on whether you keep this or not. In fact, God acknowledges that they're not going to keep it. Because He keeps it anyway. He keeps it for them. He shows that by walking through alone. I'm going to keep this for you. That's what the covenant is all about. And then Paul quotes not only from Habakkuk, he also brings a quote in from Leviticus 18.5, the one who does them shall live by them. He's talking about the works of the law. The one who does the works of the law shall live by the law. And you can ask yourself, have I been able to keep the whole law? Of course, can anyone keep the whole law? Timothy George writes, this statement can be understood as a hypothetical contrary to fact condition. If someone really were to fulfill the entire corpus of Pentateuchal law with its 242 positive commands and 365 prohibitions according to one rabbinic reckoning, then indeed such a person could stand before God at the bar of judgment and demand admittance to heaven on the basis of his or her performance. Yet where on earth can such a flawless person be found? can't. There's only one who has been flawless and he died in our place. That's Paul's whole point. The law, good and pure as it is, becomes a curse on us because we can't keep it. And so he writes in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by doing what? Becoming a curse for us. We've talked about the nature of covenants as we've looked at Genesis. You remember there's the blessing, but there's always a curse. A blessing that the covenant, when the covenant is kept, and a curse when the covenant is broken. You think of the covenant given to Moses. And Paul points out later that, that this is subservient here to the Abrahamic covenant. The covenant which gave the law to God's people. The law serves a purpose. It reveals God's holy character. It protects God's people from harm. It shows them uh, shows us, them, us, our sin when we break it. But the law is not the problem. It's our sin that's the problem. The law only becomes a problem, so to speak, when we put our confidence in trying to keep it. And even then, it's not the law that's the problem. It's us trying to put our confidence in it. So the law had and still has purpose. It protects us, points us to God, shows us His holiness, shows us our sin, reveals His character. But it was never meant to save. And so later in chapter 3 and verse 24, Paul would say this, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So the blessing of the covenant that then Christ fulfills is that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, because God is loving and merciful, he, he guides Paul in the writing of this letter to the Galatians to give us some just real down-to-earth, practical example. Paul says, I'm going to use a human example. And he speaks of a man-made covenant. And this word, can, can, this translated covenant, can also mean last will and testament. That's something that we might be more familiar with. He argues that once a, if you think of a last will and testament, once it's ratified, no one's allowed to go in there and get the eraser out or the whiteout out. I mean, that would totally defeat the whole purpose of a last will and testament if after you died, someone could go in and change it. And so we could extrapolate then from this argument and say if a man-made covenant can't be changed or, or after it's ratified, annulled or changed after it's ratified, then all the more certain can we be that a God-made covenant cannot be changed or annulled. 
And that's what the point that Paul is making. He emphasizes by saying it was all about promise. And then in verse 16, he explains the promise to show how it points to Christ. Now, he mentions the singular here, that it was not to offsprings, but it was to offspring. He's pointing out that the fulfillment is uniquely fulfilled and particularly fulfilled in Christ. Although there would be blessing to many, the fulfillment of it was by the offspring, by the seed of Abraham. It's the same distinction that we see in Genesis 3.15 in the promise that the serpent's head would be crushed by what? The seed, singular, the seed there. God has done this um, uh, this, this in, intentionality of focusing on the singular is not unique to Paul. He does this in Genesis when he talks about the uniqueness of Isaac and Jacob as singularly fulfilling uh, that covenant. Of course, this was to carry on the seed to the, the coming of the Redeemer. Here's the point. Jesus is the promise. He is the promise that was given to Adam and Eve who would come to crush the head of the serpent. Jesus is the promise given to Noah when he was told that God would never again destroy the earth by flood and that he would allow the created order to continue. Why? So that the Redeemer could come and be born of a woman to fulfill the promise which Jesus accomplishes. To Abraham was a promise of descendants and land and blessing of all people which is fulfilled in Jesus. To Moses, where God gave the law and the Mosaic covenant, Jesus alone fulfills completely and perfectly the law of God. And then you remember to David, he was promised a throne that would last forever. But where's David? David's in a grave. David's dead. And that's because Jesus came to fulfill that promise that he would reign forever and ever. And so the law, Paul says, comes after the promise and is therefore subservient to it. God's eternal plan has always been redemption by grace. His plan has always been to save His people by faith. So the law's role then has come as a tutor, as a guide, but it can't and doesn't save. And then Paul drives all of this home in the last verse in 18. For the, If the inheritance comes by law, it's no longer by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. He introduces the word inheritance here. And if you think of an inheritance, what do you do for an inheritance? Nothing. I mean, yeah, we know stories and in movies there's all kinds of dysfunction and we recognize that there can be dysfunction. But the, the idea of an inheritance is something that's gifted to you in someone's death. It's all by grace. So you don't earn an inheritance. You don't annul a, a, a last trust you know, to, to go get it. It's simply given as a gift. It's all by grace. And so just as the promise is one of grace so also is the inheritance. And it's Paul's way of saying that it is grace upon grace. It's both promise and inheritance. And that is our hope this Christmas season and indeed every day, that Jesus came to fulfill the covenant. He is the promise that was given. We sang this morning, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And I, I, there was a reference made to it in, uh, in, in some of my studies, and so I went and I read the lyrics. It wasn't originally planned to be in the service, but I, I went back and asked if we could amend it and add it to the service because I realized it captures so much of what we've been looking at, including what we're looking at today. We sang, To Ransom Captive Israel. 
Jesus came as a ransom for many, what we looked at in week one, to give the law on Sinai's height. Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly and completely, as Paul mentions about the Mosaic law. To free thine own from Satan's tyranny. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, which we saw last week. To put to death's dark shadows flight. Jesus came to overthrow sin and death. And then we sang, O come thou key of David. Jesus came as the king of kings to make safe the way that leads on high. And so this Advent season, then, may we rejoice in the fulfillment of God's covenant in the coming of our Redeemer and hope. As the writer of Hebrews says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that the covenant is fulfilled that it does not rest upon our shoulders, but that you sent your son Jesus in our place to accomplish what we could never accomplish. And so, Lord, as we think about this this Advent season and we rejoice in this, may it reach, uh, the, the, be, the, the rubber meets the road. May, may we practically apply this, Lord, as we consider the various things that we face in realizing that your love is unconditional, it is eternal, and it's unchangeable. And that the weight that the law is, it can't deliver on the goods. So may we not get tripped up in looking at the law thinking that we can somehow earn your favor or earn your love, but may we look to the promise and the fulfillment of the promise in Jesus in each and every day ahead, knowing that we are held securely by you, and that the, the, the covenant cannot be annulled, it cannot be changed, because it's been ratified. And the proof of all of this is the cross. Lord, let us look to the cross and be certain of this, that we know who holds our life and who holds the life to come. And may you encourage our hearts in this, that we would not grow weary or lose heart, but that we would keep our eyes fixed on Jesus in a strong faith, and rejoice this Christmas season for the great gift to us that He is. And it's in His name that I pray. Amen.